Hello everyone and welcome to the 12th episode of Interlinked, a global affairs podcast series committed to help students develop a basic understanding of world affairs. With a special focus on human development and its evolution in public policy, this podcast aims to trace our guest speaker, Professor Ramaswamy Sudarshan's work at UNDP and Ford Foundation. Professor Sudarshan is the Dean of Jindal School for Governance and Public Policy with a distinguished career in research, development programming, and governance. Professor was a Rhodes Scholar at the University of Oxford and was also elected to a research fellowship at the University of Cambridge. In 1984, Professor served in the Ford Foundation's South Asia office as Assistant Representative and Program Officer for Human Rights and Social Justice. In 1991, he joined the UNDP in India as a Senior Economist and Assistant Representative for Governance and Public Policy. In 2000, he joined UNDP Indonesia as Senior Governance Advisor and played a role in the establishment of the Partnership for Governance Reform in Indonesia. He was appointed Justice Advisor in 2002 at the UNDP Oslo Governance Center. In 2005, he was transferred to the UNDP Asia-Pacific Center in Bangkok, where he was Regional Policy Advisor for Governance, Human Rights, Rule of Law, Justice, and Legal Reforms. Welcome, sir. Thank you. That was quite a long introduction. Thank you very much. So we'd like to begin with what was, in your understanding, the key focus attention of public policy in the 1980s. Well, when I joined the, the Ford Foundation in 1984, um, most of the emphasis about public policy was influenced by ideas that um, were somewhat old. In other words, the Planning Commission had, uh, in the case of India, decided on uh, a policy that um, wanted to focus on domestic production capabilities and domestic employment. And uh, many countries at that time, um, in the 80s, had various kinds of difficulties um, in their balance of payments, in their macroeconomic stability. And in the effort, in fact, to um, reduce poverty uh, more rapidly than had been possible earlier. Um, and so many of the development interventions were more at the micro level. I mean, so when I joined the Ford Foundation, one of my uh, colleagues is a very distinguished professor uh, at the Institute of Development Studies, Robert Chambers. And Robert was very keen in training people in what's called participatory rural development. Um, the understanding being that um, you can make a difference to people's lives by working at the local level, by listening to people, by benefiting from knowledge they have, because uh, you know, they are the people experiencing what, is to, what it is to be in poverty or lacking uh, clean drinking water or not having facilities for healthcare or education for their children. So they're experiencing these problems. And the idea was that if you listen to these people uh, who are living through the problem um, and, and then try to figure out 
how as an external agency, you might be able to help improve their lot. So there was less of a grasp of the importance of uh, macroeconomics, of uh, larger policies of uh, the state. Uh, and the belief was that you could make a difference and that we had not made very much difference earlier because we didn't understand the problems from the perspective of people experiencing the problem, right? So how do you develop techniques to listen to people um, living in poverty um, who may be able to tell you what they think could be ways and means of them escaping from poverty and then to try and do something about it. So a lot of our emphasis in my days in the Ford Foundation were taken up with these kinds of uh, micro initiatives in different locations. So participatory learning became very popular, participatory learning methods, and uh, we trained a lot of people uh, in the NGO world, as well as in government, in India and officers from the government in Bangladesh and Sri Lanka, in these techniques, that is to go to a village to spend some time with the village people, um, to listen to them, to figure out um, what are the seasonalities um, in their lives, what difference does the monsoon make, what happens during the summer, what happens during winter in places where winters are severe, what kinds of crops are grown, uh, how do they react and how resilient are they to um, calamities uh, like drought or floods, all of these things. So, um, and we developed a whole lot of knowledge uh, of a very granular and detailed kind uh, about different communities and different locations. And the expectation was that this knowledge would be fed into the development plans that are being made. So the 80s was also a time when there was a lot of faith in um, decentralization. And uh, we managed to get the 73rd and the 74th constitutional amendments passed in India. And so we had, um, you know, devolution um, and elected representatives at the local level. So the idea was you do planning from below, you, after you've done these participatory learning techniques, you factor in priorities of the poor as identified by them, which they were confident would work and make a difference for the better in their lives. You program that into a development plan. You send that up from the village level to the district uh, and from the district to the state government and, and eventually um, to the union government in New Delhi. And so you had some answers to the way for tackling problems. Now, unfortunately, um, as often happens, the, uh, the how of things, you know, the methods by which you acquire knowledge for a certain purpose uh, began to be the end in itself. 
Now, obviously, what you learn from participatory learning methods is meant to feed into development plans and result in projects and programs. Um, that's really the expected uh, output. And the expected outcome is an improvement in the lot of lives of uh, the people who participated in your exercise. But very soon, it became clear that the government was not changing its habits by which planning was made. Um, the way it was made is last year, if the allocation was X amount, um, this year to show that you're showing that this particular area, department, say education is important, you will have X plus something, um, and that's the budget. And you would simply say, if we had opened 10 planning period, we will open 15 schools. And that indicates that we are showing more importance to education without factoring in any of this knowledge that came through from participatory methods. And so a lot of people becoming knowledgeable and familiar in participatory methods became the end in itself. So organizations like the Ford Foundation was you know, organizing all kinds of training programs. Robert Chambers was going up and down the country, initiating these lessons. Um, and in the end, um, we found that very little of the valuable knowledge that was gained through these methods began to be used or were actually used. So the 80s, at the macro level, across the world, uh, there were problems in macroeconomic stability in countries. Um, uh, India also had um, those difficulties, which culminated very soon um, in 1990, uh, when we had a very serious uh, balance of payments uh, crisis um, in India. So what had happened across the world with developing countries running into problems of macroeconomic stability uh, and serious balance of payments uh, deficits, um, the World Bank uh, began to push through what is called you know, structural adjustment programs. In other words, the bank at least identified that you need to make some changes in governance and some changes in the overall macro policy to make a difference and simply lending money to useful projects um, across the world wasn't really tackling the problem. And therefore, you needed to push countries into making policy changes. Um, and so that's the first time that you know, governance uh, was recognized as an important feature in development and in the process of development. Um, in the case of um, Africa, this was first articulated. And the structural adjustment lending programs um, insisted that countries should adopt a more open economy policy to allow more free trade. Um, and there was at that time something that was referred to as the Washington Consensus. I mean, I don't know who were parties to the consensus, but in the literature, it's now referred to as the Washington Consensus. And that 
involved um, taking steps to, um, to open up um, trade, to open up the economy um, for more involvement of the market and to downplay the role of the state. Because once this lens of governance was turned upon governments, um, they soon came to the conclusion that governments are generally very inefficient and that they are not doing a very good job, uh, whereas incentive structures and uh, the profit motive is so much more strong. The animal spirits of entrepreneurs is so important. And therefore, you had to allow the market to play a bigger role. You had to get the prices right, uh, because prices are a signaling uh, mechanism that tell you when there is greater demand for something or when there is less demand. Um, so to use the market and the price signaling systems a lot more uh, and to change the kinds of policies which countries had at that time adopted across the world, which was you know, to develop their own infant industries, to develop their own capacities. Nearly every country around the world wanted to have an airline of its own, whether that made uh, good economic sense or not. It was a matter of national pride and importance that you, have, you could fly your flag. Um, so the structural adjustment programs began to downplay the importance of public investment and try to increase the importance of private investment in economic development. Now, the result, of course, was whenever you uh, went to the government and said, your macroeconomic uh, stability is uh, very fragile. Um, your tax revenues are not enough, but your public expenditure is very high and your fiscal deficit is you know, going through the roof. Therefore, you must cut down your expenditure. Now, you can cut down expenditure or you can increase taxes. Uh, you can do one while you work on both sides also. But typically what happened is governments didn't reduce their expenditure on the military uh, because many governments, um, not, I wouldn't say it's true of India, but many, in many countries, developing countries, the military has a very strong voice um, and would not permit their budgets, the defense budget, to be cut. So what got cut? Education, health, the social sectors, got cut. Uh, civil servant salaries were somewhat protected. But the result of this, of course, was that investment in public goods or, you know, uh, what are called merit goods because they have such great external economies, uh, such as education and health, those things got cut. And so you had a situation where um, in the pursuit of uh, policies informed by the Washington consensus and pushed through by the IMF where the country had uh, sought um, support from the IMF to uh, maintain its uh, uh, macro stability. Um, you had uh, a serious deterioration in the education levels and health standards for people across many countries around the world. So at that time, the UNICEF, which was particularly concerned about 
that a lot of women and children, mothers and children, found that um, malnourishment was increasing. There was starvation in some parts of Africa and children were not getting enough to eat. Um, and there was a serious problem with education. And all of this was related to agreements that had been signed by respective governments with the World Bank and the IMF, these Bretton Woods institutions. And so the UNICEF at that point produced um, a book um, which was uh, uh, primarily the brainchild and work of uh, Professor Richard Jolly, um, who incidentally was also at the Institute of Development Studies in Sussex, a colleague of Robert Chambers, whom I'd mentioned earlier. So Richard Jolly wrote this book called Structural Adjustment with a Human Face. Now, the UNICEF was not bold enough to say that much of what uh, the bank and the fund were recommending countries should do was a whole lot of poppycock. I mean, you know, UNICEF is a UN institution. It doesn't have all that kind of money and clout to influence policies. Um, it has to be more humble and modest in what it says. And therefore, it didn't say structural adjustment should be thrown out of the window because it's not doing much good. It said that there should be a human face to structural adjustment. And therefore, um, investments in education, health, um, uh, local employment uh, schemes to support the poor with safety nets, um, all of them um, should be protected and their budgets shouldn't be slashed. So that was the kind of situation in the 80s. So when I worked in the, in the Ford Foundation, as I said, we all we thought that we could, um, by working at the local level, make a difference to different communities. The problem is you can, but the scale of poverty uh, and um, unemployment, um, malnourishment is so vast that you work with a handful of NGOs um, and uh, try and develop a, a program um, that would help these people. So, you know, one of the big things the Ford Foundation did when I was working there was um, a project um, called Sukhomajri uh, in uh, Chandigarh. Um, this is a project that involved conserving rainwater and turning what was uh, an arid, dry uh, patch of land um, into something that's green with uh, more assured water supply and therefore you could grow crops and uh, orchards and, and so on and sort of make the desert bloom as it were. So this became a kind of a showcase. Uh, people from all over the world came to see how with the local participation uh, of people, you could get a change in the way the natural resources um, could be better used for the benefit of the communities living there. But that's Sukhomajri, right? There was some replication in another little place called Nada near Sukhomajri. Uh, incidentally, the name of the village, Sukhomajri, could be translated in two ways, depending on how you accent it. Um, Sukhna is to get dry. So one uh, name is the dry village, but Sukh is happiness. So Sukhomajri could be 
a happy village. So what I'm trying to say is that a lot of development efforts of organizations of the kind that I worked in, um, UNDP and others, uh, donor agencies that uh, were trying to give development assistance, um, did not place much faith in governments and large government schemes, placed a lot more faith in NGOs and supported them. But the positive impact that was made was obviously small because you couldn't go to scale and you couldn't do something very big that affects a very large number of people. So, but you could say every little drop counts, um, it was worth doing it. But the point about that is that, you know, uh, unless you get macro policies right, uh, and unless the state takes a great initiative um, in terms of both its policies, as well as its capability uh, to deliver what it is supposed to deliver, you're not going to make a great difference to people. So we ended up in the 80s, the 80s ended up with um, crises all around, uh, structural adjustment policies uh, failed to help uh, development. And if you think about it, the main goals of the IMF and the World Bank were reduction in poverty and macroeconomic stability. And if you looked at the record over a period of two, two decades, you'd find that um, uh, it was not a very great impact on poverty reduction. And many economies were still in um, a crisis situation. And India got into that situation itself, India being uh, a very large economy uh, in the 90s, a serious uh, balance of payments crisis where we had uh, foreign exchange reserves that could only support three months of what India imported um, for its uh, needs. Uh, so it's a pretty grim situation. So the whole of 80s, uh, the optimistic part was um, you know, Robert Chambers and Richard Jolly uh, and trying to make some difference with the NGOs and civil society organizations, but ending up with uh, macroeconomic problems uh, of the kind that India uh, faced. Uh, and uh, at that point, uh, India had to rather humiliatingly pledge the gold it had in the reserves of the Bank of India, uh, the Reserve Bank of India. We had to, and they wouldn't even trust the government. This gold had to be put on planes, transported to London to satisfy international debtors that India is credit worthy and that we would meet our debt obligations. And to prove that we had to send this gold physically uh, to London. So you could imagine um, that's a rather humiliating situation to get yourself into after so many years of uh, development planning and so many intelligent people having worked in the planning commission and drawn up one five-year plan after another uh, and you end up in this situation. Um, Mr. Chandrasekhar was briefly our prime minister at that time and who had to make this painful decision, very painful for a socialist uh, that he was, uh, to send this gold to London too, and then to go um, to the IMF 
and plead with the IMF for uh, um, its support, um, transfer of uh, uh, funds so that we could meet our international debt obligations and not become uh, an unworthy creditor. Um, so that's the story of the 80s. So the, there was improvement in some quarters, in some places. Uh, generally, um, there was, you know, slowly India's rate of growth, which was earlier uh, slandered as a Hindu rate of growth of barely 3% began to show some improvement. Um, but um, on the whole, um, it was not a, a terrific period because the major goals of poverty reduction, which in, involved um, not just in increasing per capita income, but also making sure that the per capita income increase benefited the poor because you could have an increase uh, in um, the per capita income of a country and the beneficiaries of that could just be the well-off people um, and very little of it trickling down to help the poor. Um, so we came to a very crucial point uh, when in 1991 um, we had to um, in a way follow um, the diktat and the expectations of the IMF which is to say that we will liberalize uh, all restrictions on, or many restrictions on trade, reduce tariffs on imports, um, and that we will uh, privatize, uh, please give more scope to uh, private sector and the market, and we will globalize, which means we will become more active partners in international trade and, and unlike previously when international trade contributed very little to our GDP, we will in, increase the share of international trade in the performance of the economy overall. That's globalization. So we had an LPG that we adopted in 1991. Since you really want me to connect it to connect the sort of the story of what's happening around the world um, to what I was doing. Um, in 1990, um, I was still working in the Ford Foundation. Um, and as I said, at that time, all development agencies were very involved in these sort of micro uh, focused uh, initiatives to reduce poverty improved a lot of poor people. Interestingly, um, in a way, um, the circle has come around. And if you look at the work of uh, Abhijit Banerjee and Esther Duflo, um, again, you know, their new book um, and uh, a, a book some years back called Poor Economics goes down to the local level to figure out um, what works and how you can help people improve their lot in life by making changes at the local level in terms of incentives and uh, policies that um, directly impact on poor people. Now, that's another story that we come back to that. Uh, uh, but in 1990, um, 
a very important um, event occurred in the history of development, so to speak. And that was that Dr. Mahbubul Haq, who had been the chief economist in the World Bank and, and was frustrated with the World Bank's um, emphasis on gross domestic product as the measure for economic progress or economic development. So if your rate of growth of gross domestic product increased, you were doing well. And um, the whole point about policies was how to get growth. And he felt that this didn't actually benefit those who considerations, especially uh, one of human values and humanitarian considerations, people at the bottom of the heap didn't really benefit from whatever growth that was happening. And the assumption that the bank and the fund had made that a rising tide will lift all boats, including the boat of the poor and the humble and the marginalized, right? Now, the problem is that, um, you know, these, there are some people in very, very fragile vessels and a rising tide is likely to swamp them and finish them off um, rather than lift them up uh, as the imagery or the metaphor of um, the rising tide um, suggested to some economists. So Mahbubul Haq was very bothered by this, this uh, single-minded pursuit of growth and growth in GDP as it was conventionally measured. Uh, he felt that this didn't really tell you how well people are doing. It can tell you how well the economy is doing uh, because you've got a more rapid rate of growth. But how well are people doing in the economy that is supposedly doing well? Now, you see, GDP is a very uh, crude measure. It just is a summation of everything that is produced uh, nationally. In, in other words, if you take the nation state as the unit, you figure out what accrues to the nation state as what it has produced. So um, if you got, um, you know, all, all of the national income accounts come into this, tourism uh, and so on. Uh, and, but the point is, say for instance, if you increased the production of tobacco, your GDP will go up. If you increased your production of tobacco products that people consume, your GDP will go up. But as a result of consuming more tobacco products, if people become ill and sick and they go to see their doctor much more frequently or get hospitalized more frequently, the GDP will go up again because you are adding up the extra productivity of uh, doctors and nurses and hospitals that comes on the plus side of um, um, growth. Um, so in effect, what you'd have is you'd have very sick people as a result of expansion of tobacco production and tobacco consumption, and your growth rate would be very positive because that's all you're measuring. You're not measuring how well this people are doing and you're not measuring 
that people are suffering from diseases caused by tobacco. So that's a limitation in the way national income accounts are done and GDP is calculated. So merely focusing on the expansion of GDP and its rate of growth and forgetting about human beings bothered some people, bothered Richard Jolly, bothered Mahbubul Haq. So Haq decided he had had enough of the World Bank and fortunately, the head of the UNDP at the time, interestingly, he was a person who did not come from an academic background. He was what you might call a first-rate United States capitalist who had been the head of the Import and Export Bank of uh, United States, uh, a businessman, actually. Um, but he saw the point that Mahbubul Haq was trying to get at and Mahbubul Haq needed a platform or an institution from which he could advance this idea that human development is what we should worry about and not so much economic growth, although growth is important. You couldn't say that if growth was negative, prospects for human development are good. But nonetheless, growth being positive doesn't automatically mean human development is uh, also being gained. So he needed a place, and so um, he was invited to join the UNDP and set up an office called the Human Development Report Office and to produce a report in 1990 that was published. It made a big conceptual difference to our understanding of development. Uh, and in working on this report, Mahbubul Haq roped in um, his contemporary and friend from Cambridge, uh, Amartya Sen, they were both in Cambridge as undergraduates. And Amartya and uh, Huck, in a way, became a team. And Mahbubul Haq had articulated the problems with growth per se. Um, he described growth that does not create jobs for people and it's possible to get growth through technological advances without necessarily employing people uh, or employing very few people. He called that jobless growth. Growth that greatly increases inequalities and benefits the better off and doesn't touch the lives of poor people. He called that ruthless growth. Growth that kind of compromises your culture and your traditions. Growth, for instance, that involves building a big dam like the Narmada Sagar Dam, and in the process of doing that to submerge uh, land on which tribal people lived, in whom the land which had their sacred groves and their gods and goddesses, uh, all of that submerged because you have this wonderful big dam. Uh, he called that rootless growth, I mean, growth that doesn't very much care for culture and what human beings value um, as important. Um, you know, you must, you know, to build the modern temples of India, as Nehru called them, um, you know, if you needed to bulldoze a mosque or a gurudwara or a temple, so be it. Um, it should be done because in an utilitarian calculus, 
it is supposed to give benefits to people, but these things do matter to people. If you care about people, you will pause before you do such things. So, so Huck had these terms, you know, jobless growth, rootless growth, rootless growth, and so on. So he kind of castigated growth, not to say that growth is not desirable, but growth is necessary, but not sufficient for human development. And then he wanted Amartya Sen to help him to devise an index that would supplant the GDP as the kind of um, lodestar for progress. Um, and he wanted that index to focus on what matters to people. So what matters to people? A long life and a healthy life matters to people. Having enough means to live a reasonably comfortable life, that means some minimal income matters to people. The ability to acquire knowledge and to be able to use that knowledge matters to people. So these things do matter. And alongside Mahbubul Haq's castigation of um, making growth into the deity that economists and policymakers would worship, Amartya had been thinking about what he calls human capabilities. And, and this is an idea that's rather old. The idea that flourishing and well-being of people depends upon improving their capabilities. It's an idea that's greatly elaborated by Aristotle, um, who laid emphasis on human capabilities. So if the city of Athens is to flourish, the citizens of Athens needed to be educated. They needed to be able to think for themselves. They needed to make decisions in a direct democracy kind of way. Uh, they needed to be strong and in good health. They needed to be able to fight uh, enemies like Sparta. So the idea that you give priority to developing capabilities in people was something that Amartya uh, and um, Martha Nussbaum, a philosopher and a constitutional lawyer had, uh, and an Aristotle scholar had developed. So they had developed this concept of human capabilities and functionings. In other words, not only should you develop your capabilities as a human being so that you live up to your full potential, you also get the opportunity in society, in your background and in your condition to use those capabilities, right? So there is a societal obligation towards people to create the conditions in which people will use their capabilities. That is if they were in good health and strong and physically fit and educated, that they apply their knowledge in being educated and being in good health um, in employment that's gainful to them and greatly contributing to society. So that's the idea. So you had on the one hand, an importance of developing capabilities of people. On the other hand, you had to have policies that ensured that people could function 
they're called functionings in the literature, that they could use these capabilities for their benefit and for the benefit of fellow human beings. So that broadly is the kind of capabilities approach to development that Amartya Sen and Martha Nussbaum had articulated, which Mahbubul Haq completely understood and endorsed. But Haq being more pragmatic, he wanted an index, um, an index that would capture at least not all of the capabilities that you could potentially think of, but at least, um, you know, some per capita income that you need for your creature comforts. Um, you don't need an awful lot. I mean, you, know, you need, because in that scheme of things, uh, wealth has a diminishing marginal utility, you know. Um, you have a one-bedroom house, okay, you have a two-bedroom house, you have a three-bedroom house, but you know, a 13-bedroom house, you know, it's not really necessary for your creature comfort. So you put a cap on the income that you need for these basic necessities, and then try and get a measure of health and a measure for capability of acquiring knowledge. So you had to use whatever statistics we had, they had to use that. So they, initially Amartya was not in favor of an index that had three components, one per capita income with a cutoff, two, uh, the years of schooling that you had, which is a kind of approximation to education and knowledge. And life expectancy. Now, life expectancy is a kind of a proxy for uh, good health. Because if life expectancy is high, it means incidence of uh, serious diseases and uh, morbidity uh, must be low in the population. Otherwise, people wouldn't live um, to a ripe old age. And so life expectancy could be treated as a proxy for people living healthy lives. No, although the direction, the connection isn't direct, um, it's still a proxy. It approximates something that you want to give importance to. The difficulty, of course, is life expectancy changes very slowly. And so it's uh, got its problems as a measure of well-being on the dimension of health. So Amartya objected to this and said, listen, I put these three components, right? And they're all given equal weight. And then you get a pure number from it, which is called the Human Development Index. Um, he said, this is okay, but you know, it's very crude and vulgar. And Amartya said, got this answer from Mahbubul Haq. He said, yes, Amartya, yes, it is crude and vulgar, but so is the gross domestic product, crude and vulgar. And every policymaker around the world, and the bank and the fund and anyone you think of is using GDP. So I'd like to displace this GDP, which is a crude and vulgar measure, with another crude and vulgar measure, it doesn't matter, but at least this measure that we are trying to advance is trying to get at what actually matters, that is the well-being of people. Thus developed the Human Development Index. And because you had statistics on life expectancy and per capita income and mean years of schooling, primary school, 
how many years did a, you know, a people complete, what percentage of the people complete primary schooling, what percentage of the people complete secondary schooling, and what percentage of the people go to tertiary or higher education. Um, you can take these various means, uh, averages of all of this, aggregate it into one number, uh, which measures your um, educational attainments in a society. And so the first human development report came out in 1990 with a human development index that ranked different countries on this particular index. Now, I was in the Ford Foundation and then I was completely taken up when this report was published. I read it and I thought, my God, you know, this is what the world really needs. Um, that you have an articulation of the concept of human development. I still remember that in the first chapter of the 1990 report, um, which is authored by Huck and uh, Amartya Sen, there's a quotation from Aristotle, which says, wealth is not the good we seek. We seek it for the sake of something else. Now that something else is really what human development is all about. In, when Aristotle wrote that, he was also thinking of status and prestige that somebody would command in society by being wealthy. That's, that's true, we, you know, human beings do crave um, status and respect and you know, um, being looked up to as a benefactor or a prosperous person um, who was, uh, could stand on his own feet and be able to help others, that kind of thing. So that's what Aristotle was thinking of. Um, so there's this quote that wealth is not the good we seek. Uh, we seek it for the sake of something else. And there's another quote from Immanuel Kant. Now this is very important because um, Immanuel Kant is this German philosopher who marks a turning point in the thinking of um, you know, the world, so to speak, about the place of individuals in society. Um, before that, uh, before Kant articulated it as clearly as he did in the critique of pure reason, you know, it was a society, Europe was a society that had status. You know, you, uh, the Lord in his manor and the peasant at the gate, it's a kind of poetic imagery that you get in uh, Wordsworth or something like that. You know, it, it was a feudal society where a class of people were the ruling class and uh, another set of people um, were humble um, tradesmen and um, workers. And you had even another tier of people who were slaves. And in all of this, of course, women didn't count, um, you know, they were, they were not, even if you didn't strictly call them slaves, their lives were in enslavement for the most part. So Kant's thinking was very radical because he articulated that, that the individual person in a way should be his own legislator. And the categorical imperatives of Kant come from that idea 
that you know societies can be oppressive you know um, individual freedom can be suppressed by families who tell children that they shouldn't marry somebody outside this caste or outside this religion or from some other place place all kinds of social curbs on uh, people so although we need other people and we need to live in communities communities can be oppressive and diminish our freedoms and this is an insight that you get in um, Kant's philosophy. So the quotation in the Human Development Report um, is something like this. It says, uh, treat human beings as ends in themselves, never as means only. That's the quote. Now, what does that mean? It means that you treat human beings equally that you treat human beings as ends in themselves, that whatever is done is done for the well-being of uh, humanity. Um, and you don't treat them as means only. Now, this is, Kant didn't say, don't treat them as means. He says, don't treat them as means only. In other words, human beings are resources. Um, they are, that's why we call the ministry, ministry of human resource development. Right? Because human beings are resourceful and are in themselves resources. But you mustn't treat human beings as resources. You treat a slave as a resource. Because the slave will add uh, to your productivity. It will help you grow more sugarcane. Um, or will uh, the slave woman will help uh, take care of your children. Uh, you're treating that person, the slave then, as a factor of production, as a mere resource, not as a human being. If you treat a human being as a human being, you wouldn't have that person in the position of a slave. You would value the freedom as much. And so this idea is greatly and beautifully articulated by a book that later Amartya Sen published, which is called Development as Freedom that in our understanding of development itself, we must incorporate human freedoms. The freedom to speak, the freedom to follow your conscience, to practice any faith you want, to choose your employment, to choose your spouse, to choose your companion, whether that be somebody of the same sex or an, the opposite sex, whatever. Freedoms are as much a part of development as increase in per capita income or increase in your creature comforts or in your education or health facilities or whatever, whatever. So the idea that freedom, human freedom is very important is signaled in the very first human development report itself. So capabilities of human beings, uh, what people need to flourish is there um, by reference to Aristotle and freedom human freedom and the importance of human beings being able to, in a way, legislate for themselves and then universalize that to you say, I will live under this law, but this law is something by which all others would live. And therefore, another way in which the categorical imperative is stated is do unto others as you would have others do unto you. Okay, so these are critically important ideas. Um, drawn from fields like um, classical Greek uh, philosophy, from um, European 
uh, enlightenment uh, philosophy um, and merged with the understanding of the two uh, men from the Indian subcontinent have with India's civilizational values informing them. All of that goes into the concept of human development, even though the measure of human development, the human development index is very seriously limited, the concept is rich and beautiful. And in a way, the Indian conception, um, I was once in a conversation with the, the former prime minister, Mr. Narasimharao, um, and by that time in 1991, I joined UNDP because I was so inspired by the 1990 first human development report um, that I joined the UNDP in Delhi, um, which wasn't much of a move because it's just across a lane from the building of the Ford Foundation to the building of UNDP, which was also a Ford Foundation building given rent-free to the UN. Um, in 91, and at that time, the first person I went to meet was Dr. Manmohan Singh, uh, who was then the um, the um, uh, chairman of the University Grants Commission. But quickly he became the finance minister and initiated the uh, reforms with Mr. Narasimharao. So I was talking about what is the conception of the good life? Because human development is about the good life. Uh, what is the good life, right? Human beings. So in the conception of human development as articulated in UNDP, Mahbubul Haq and Amartya Sen, it's greatly influenced by Kantian philosophy and is very individual center. Um, and it puts a great deal of emphasis on human beings having the freedom to choose the kind of life they would wish to live, right? Now, this is a departure from an Aristotelian conception. In Aristotle, the good life is something that you discover by having lived through your life. In fact, you must regard your life as a process of discovery. And every day you're discovering something. And so your life, the good life, the examined life as Socrates called it, is a life where you are in quest of what is the good life. So the good life is not simply a matter of choice, saying I like uh, vanilla and you like butterscotch. It's not that. But nonetheless, the element of freedom of choice uh, is strong in the conception of human development because Huck and uh, Amartya Sen are both uh, in uh, terms of research methods, you know, you may say they're methodological individualists, they place the individual at the center. And in fact, the whole literature about human rights also places the individual at the center, not a group, not a country, not the world, but the individual. So we had this uh, wonderful amalgam of um, classical ancient Greek thinking. So I explained these things to Mr. Narasimharov and said, you know, because I, he asked me why I had moved to work in UNDP, leaving the Ford Foundation. And then he said that, the, that, the, that his conception of the good life, and he cited a Sanskrit couplet, 
which I still remember. He said, my idea of the good life is anayasena maranam vina dhainya jivanam. That means it means an easy, painless death and a life without want or having to supplicate to somebody. Well, that's a pretty good definition of the good life. Uh, because, you know, if you, if you have a healthy life uh, and you live to a long old age and you just pop off, right, an easy, painless death, that's to be desired as part of the good life. And if you don't have to be dependent on somebody, you don't know where your next meal is going to come from, and you are stretching out your hands um, to others to help you, it affects your self-respect, it affects your self-esteem, and that's not a good life. So, so this was why I think the publication of the Human Development Report is a milestone in the history of uh, development economics in 1990. Uh, the report is still being published. Um, this year would be the 30th uh, report or the 30th year of the publication of this report. And, and I have to say uh, with some wistfulness that after all these years, governments and policymakers are still focused on the GDP and growth. They are still to give enough importance to investment in people. So one of the things I hope the COVID-19 lesson would be that you, India, and all of these countries, especially the United States, did not make sufficient public investment in its public health systems. And when that public health system is put to trial by the spread of a very contagious virus, like the coronavirus, you realize that how important that investment is. And it's got to be public investment because, see, private the market will go for where there's the greatest value and the greatest profits to be made. So they will go for specialty care, you know, sophisticated laser treatment and sophisticated cancer therapies and super specialty hospitals, but they will not make an investment in primary health care, which is having a sensible doctor who makes sure that children are immunized, they get their polio, drops and they get their vaccination and women are taken care of and they're able to deliver their babies in with some care in some hygienic condition all of that investment doesn't attract the private sector because the margins the profit that you could make from that is very very small uh, and but if the state neglects it as we have uh, we are in serious trouble um, so i have to say that right now we needed a shock like the coronavirus and COVID to teach us lessons that were articulated in 1990 in the concept of human development, which even though it was articulated in that way and over many years, the irony, the ultimate irony is UNDP, which can take the credit for propagating the concept and the idea of human development, where I worked 
for 22 years, this organization, when it has to make a decision as to how much development assistance it would give to different developing countries, instead of using the human development index as the yardstick, and to say we will give more support to a country whose human development is low so that it can improve, the UNDP doesn't do that. The UNDP uses per capita income, per capita GDP as the measure by which it determines assistance. Why? Because even though it doesn't need it, it's such a rich country comparatively, uh, China wants UNDP's share of assistance. Every drop counts for China. And if you used human development, China would not get any assistance uh, because its human development is high. Um, so, but it insists on the board of UNDP. Uh, so does India, um, you know, because on per capita terms, we use per capita as a very convenient denominator, you know. Uh, if you say who's responsible for climate change, you say, oh, we know per capita, in per capita terms, our carbon emissions are sort of negligible. You know, so we don't have to do much about climate change. No, what you do, 1.3 billion people, you have a role on the planet and you have to do it. So you can't just bring role in per capita when it suits you. But unfortunately, that's what's done. And so we still have to get policymakers to be seriously and truly committed to the idea of human development. Um, so after 22 years of somewhat high expectancy, then diminishing expectancy, and then um, frustration in the UN system, I decided to move to the Jindal Global University and start a school of public policy so that at least a new generation of young people um, can be inculcated with beautiful ideas that can genuinely make a difference. So when they become policymakers, the hope is that the education and the seeds that we are trying to sow in our school at the undergraduate and the postgraduate level will give at least India and some other foreign country students the wherewithal to get a better grasp of what development actually should be and why continuing to worship the god of wealth, mammon or kubera and GDP is not wise. Yeah, that answers most of the questions, Professor. Uh, I just wanted to end it with one thing. Moving forward from today, like you said that the coronavirus was a shock that, you know, made people realize that the healthcare system is flawed. We're not really moving towards sustainability. So do you see a consensus amongst public policy thinkers about sustainability in the post-COVID scenario? Or do you think nations will once again compromise in order to restore their economic positions? Well, it's very difficult to, uh, to make predictions of that kind. And, and economists, of course, are notorious in getting predictions um, wrong. Um, somebody remarked that uh, all that the predictions of economists do is to give astrologers a good name. Um, 
it's difficult to say because you see what is happening is that there is a consciousness that we can come into a post-COVID world with more resolve and determination about how important nature is to human well-being. Clean air is a precious public good. And the responsibility for the existence of any public good cannot be the market. By definition, you know, a public good is available to everybody. You cannot exclude anybody. And it's non-rival. In other words, if you breathe the air and I breathe the air, my breathing the air doesn't diminish the quantity of air that's available to you. And knowledge is a public good. Uh, if I acquire knowledge and you acquire the same knowledge, that doesn't diminish the knowledge for either of us. And, um, and it's possible not to exclude anyone from acquiring knowledge. So these public goods are important. And so there's a consciousness now that you know, the quality of air, for instance, has probably saved many more lives um, than those who died of the virus. Um, so in that way, the virus may have actually done good um, to human beings taken as a whole um, than bad because the air is cleaned up, the waters of the rivers have become clean. Um, the birds are flourishing, there are lots of squirrels and animals. So we can see that, you know, the kind of industrial production, the kind of economy that we have built up has harmed um, very, very vital things for human beings. Um, and therefore, we could say post-COVID, let us try and conserve these gains because one of the more optimistic lessons here is that nature is phenomenally resilient. Um, it's, it repairs itself so quickly. You know, the rivers that were polluted and seemed hopeless and impossible that they would ever have drinking water now have it uh, after a relatively short period of closing down the economy as it was flourishing. So one thing is we hope that a number of policymakers would get together and say, let's not go back to business as usual, do what we were doing before, and let's think of chart a new path where we would get, you know, not luxuries, we will not be making rich people much richer, but we will ensure that poor people have enough to make their ends meet, have a decent life, and, you know, in a way, to think of what you might call uh, a sufficiency economy. You know, the King of Thailand, uh, who passed away, Bhubibol Agilutej, um, deriving from Buddhist principles, uh, argued for what is called a sufficiency economy. A sufficiency economy is something that gives what's sufficient. And Gandhi articulated it. He said that, you know, people should be able to get everything that they need within a hundred kilometer radius. Um, there's no need to get something that, you know, mackerel or salmon that's fished in the North Sea near Norway and send it all the way down to New Zealand uh, using uh, aircraft or ships uh, and uh, emitting tons of carbon in getting salmon or beef from Argentina 
to go to some other place, right? So Gandhi's idea was you should plan your life. Um, communities should plan their lives such that everything they need is within a hundred kilometer radius. And we've learned to live like that now with this lockout, right? We've managed to do with whatever resources that are near us and available. So what it proves is it proves that that's not a kind of harebrained, stupid thought of some old man who had uh, corny ideas. It means it's possible. But are policymakers bold enough to get onto that? Are they able to resist uh, what pressures there would be from those who've done very well by this terrible system that has hurt the planet so well, so much? So the, the other scenario is that we want to go back to business as usual, but worse, our government seems to be concerned that we have to now, you know, after saying lockdown, 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 stay at home, stay at home, don't go out. Um, the word that we get from our leaders is, Unlock, 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 start the economy, start the economy. And how are you doing that? You're, you are making changes to labor laws that would have protected labor. You are making changes to environmental regulations that would have required public consent before you begin a new factory so that the public knows whether they will vote for the pollution that will go with the factory or say, okay, we will accept the pollution, but we will also opt for the factory because it will give us employment, but the locality and the public will make that decision, right? If you say make the local vocal, you cannot at the same time remove a provision in environmental regulation that says you must consult the community, the local community, before you give a no objection certificate for an industry to start. But so much is the anxiety of the government to start that industry and to revive the economy or GDP growth that the Ministry of Environment has already announced dilution of these environmental protection standards. So that is telling you the direction in which we are likely to go. The direction in which it is desirable to go that has been shown as possible for us to go is there. And the direction in which we are very likely to go there are already strong signs of that. And so I must say, on that note, I can't be very optimistic. This brings us to the end of the podcast. Thank you, sir, for sharing your journey with us. Thank you. That was a pleasure. <laughs>